You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. It was the 3rd of June, another sleepy, dusty, death day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was bailing hay. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm going to take a complete look at The Nom number 20 and give some background on September 1967, which is when this issue takes place. The musical selection this time around is Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry, which was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 the weeks of August 26th, September 2nd, September 9th, September 16th, and September 23rd, 1967. It tells the story of Billy Joe McAllister, who famously jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. The song was such a success for Bobby Gentry that its subject matter would end up being adapted for both a novel and a film. Our comic came out on March 29th, 1988, and was cover dated July 1988, according to Mike's Amazing World. Dominoes is written by Doug Murray, Wayne Van Sant was the penciler, Jeff Isherwood was the inker, Phil Felix the letterer, letterer, colorist and colorist, Mike Higgins the editor, Larry Hama consulting editor, Pat Redding managing editor, Mike Rockwitz assistant editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. It's September 1967, and we are at the 12th EVAC Hospital in Chu Chi, where O'Donnell is presenting Rob with a Purple Heart, which is his fourth. O'Donnell asks him to recall what happened, and we get a flashback to when Rob pushed Alarnik out of the way of a grenade a few issues ago. O'Donnell then asks a little more about Alarnik, and Rob says he can't really remember what, what else. O'Donnell says that's all right and wishes Rob good luck as he's going back to the world. Rob thanks him and says that his leg's going to be all right. O'Donnell leaves, thinking that he wishes they had more in the army like him. Several days later, at the 23rd's headquarters, Clark is giving a statement to an inquiry board about Alarnik's death, and says that while he didn't frag him, he's not sure, he's not sorry that someone did. He goes into further detail, saying he wanted to do something because Alarnik got a lot of his friends hurt, but he ran into Roland before he could reach Alarnik's hooch. And that's when the explosion happened. Roland corroborates Clark's testimony, saying that he was in the club waiting for Clark to arrive and headed out to meet him, stopping him from going to Alarnix and offering to walk him back to his hooch. When they were about halfway there, the explosion went off. The inquiry bird lets Clark off the hook and says that the perpetrator is still unidentified and undetermined. Back in the hooch, the guys from the 23rd celebrate. Roland comes in and tells them they're due in his office the next morning, even though they're supposed to stand down until replacements come in. When they arrive, Roland asks them if they know about the domino theory, which is, as Clark says, if we lose the nom, the rest of Southeast Asia goes red. Roland tells him that he's right, and that the governments of neighboring countries are sending in troops to keep that from happening. They are then introduced to Sergeant Bo from the Royal Thai Army Regiment, the Queen's Cobras as they're called. The 23rd is being asked to go, to help him get acclimated for a few days in the field. They get onto a chopper and Bo gets a little airsick. The guys tell him that the feeling will go away after a bit and they touch down near a rice paddy. They head toward a village and see that it's been evacuated, but just as they begin to head out, a sniper starts firing, hitting one of Bo's men. Bo sends some of his men into the jungle and they nab the sniper. 
As they are getting ready for the dust-off, Bo tells Ice that his men have asked if he wants the sniper's ears. Ice doesn't understand, and Bo explains that his men keep them as a badge of honor. Ice cracks that Alarnik would have liked him, but says no thanks. The dust-off arrives, but another sniper does as well, and while one chopper takes off while Ice Pig and Rubino start firing at what is a full-on attack, Bo suggests that they charge from three sides, but Ice points out that there are too many people for that and tells Daniel to get over there with the radio. Daniel fakes being shot and gets yelled at for screwing around in the middle of combat. Ice then radios in an artillery attack. The tanks begin firing and make contact. When the dust settles, the smoke clears, Bo says, Such power. Ice explains that it's not worth anything if they can't find anything, and as usual, they don't, and start humping it back to the base. When they arrive several hours later, Bo and Ice are comparing notes in part ways. At the same time, a short distance away, Clark is saying goodbye to Rob, who is on crutches and going home. Rob tells him to take care of his boys. Clark replies, bet on it. Now let's get you to that bird. It's time for you to go home. This issue resolves some of what was left over from the end of issue 18, where we saw Rob save Alarnik's life at the expense of his own safety, which led Alarn- to Alarnik getting fragged at the end of the story. There was really no clear way to tell who planted the grenade in Alarnik's hooch, although it was implied that it could have been P- Clark, maybe even Roland. Here, it looks like this is going to be swept under the rug for the time being as something that was inconclusive. Alarnik didn't seem to have many friends to begin with, so it's not surprising that an inquiry board wouldn't go very far in their investigation. It's disappointing to see Rob go, and I hope that he shows up in a future issue, perhaps back in the world, much like we'll definitely run into Ed Marks from time to time. The strength of Murray's writing here is that he's been able to get us to care about characters who are bound to make exits throughout the series. Yes, there has been some criticism in the letter columns that some of the men seem to stick around way more than you'd think they would, but I know that men did re-up, and there were some who were lifers, and to his credit, Murray's not going to send Rob back into the field by any means. Since we don't have an Ed Marks, he's doing a great job at shifting focus from one guy to another. Rob was our focus for a few issues until he was hurt, and now clearly, at least on some level, it's Clark. Clark's a great character to follow for a little while, too. I'm glad he wasn't the one to frag Alarnik, or at least if he was, he wasn't wasn't prosecuted for it. Because there's something inherently good about the man, and I hate to have that tainted in some way, even though it wouldn't be too far out there for that to happen. The mission seems to be one that would happen, but also one that seems to be shoehorned into the issue just so that we can have some action. The 23rd is supposed to be hanging out for a few days while they wait for reinforcements, but suddenly they're assigned babysitting duty for some Thai soldiers. Not to dwell too much on it, we at least get a look at the conduct and philosophy of another army, with Bo asking Phillips if he wants the ears of the sniper. This isn't the first time I've heard about this, by the way. Uh, My first exposure to the whole keeping the ears of the enemy practice was actually through the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Universal Soldier, because Dolph Lundgren's character wore a necklace of ears of Vietnamese that he had killed. Because that movie is historically accurate. But overall, it's a solid presentation, and by the end, we're back at the base. My worry, however, at this point, is because the action is a little more routine from time to time, It might be getting a little stale. Yes, I'm aware that war is not like being on a movie set all the time, and Murray's doing his best to make the action seem like it's seamless and not forced. Plus, he keeps me reading for the characters themselves, giving guys like Clark and Rob their moments. And while Rob may be gone, Phillips or Ice is growing on me. I still like Clark. 
Plus, I'm still kind of curious as to what happened to Ramnarine, and if we'll ever get to see him again, or if Roland's constant drinking will result in some sort of trouble. The art, once again, is great. Van Sant and Isherwood have really hit their stride as an art team, and Bob Camp's cover is pretty cool as well. It's a shot of Phillips and Clark strapping a TIE soldier to a stretcher and signaling for a chopper to pick him up. It's dramatic and eye-catching, definitely the type of thing that would get you to pick up this issue off the shelf at the comic store. Inside, Van Sant and Isherwood continue to give life to the characters and add a great amount of detail to both the vehicles and the setting. And Phil Felix provides some great color so the art really pops off the page, especially on this more expensive paper. So all around, a solid issue. Although, like I said, I hope that we'll continue to get more character pieces over the next few issues so that things don't start to get stale as far as the action's concerned. I'm going to take a break, and then when I get back, I'll talk about historical context, letters, and ads. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Comics, movies, and TV shows. Trennis Magnus punches reality. The People's Geeky Podcast. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Celebrating 50 ball-smashing episodes. Trennis Magnus punches reality. Episode 50, coming July 1st, 2014. Only at 2TrueFreaks.com. I'm not kidding around either. If I ever find out my show's been syndicated on some other podcast network without my permission, I'll sue a motherfucker. The Royal Thai Army Regiment, known as the Queen's Cobras, did serve in South Vietnam starting in 1967. This was a part departure from the Thai government's then policy of non-intervention and marked for the United States an important regional ally in their war effort. According to a story printed in The Day from New London, Connecticut, which was written by the Associated Press, 2,000 soldiers joined the fight and would be ready by July. Half of those 2,000 were from the Thai military, and half of them were civilian volunteers. They were being equipped with American weapons and helicopters and were also being trained. Thailand was picking up the cost of the mission, and once the first regiment was trained, a second would be prepared, and they served until 1972. I haven't been able to find any information regarding whether or not Bo's statement that Thai soldiers cutting off the ears of the fallen enemy was an accepted practice in the army or not. I know that the severing of ears and subsequent wearing of them as a necklace was one of the more infamous practices of those American soldiers who were accused of war crimes at certain points during the war. It was not a common or widespread practice, but definitely became notorious and has been depicted in movies and literature about the war. Otherwise, in September 1967, we have the North Vietnamese Prime Minister pledging that the country will continue to fight. And September 3rd, uh, elections are held in South Vietnam with Nguyen Van Thu elected president, with Nguyen Cao Cai as his vice president. On September 14th, the Marines commence Operation Swift. According to Wikipedia, the mission involving the forces of the 1st Marine Division was carried out to rescue two Marine companies which had been previously ambushed by the North Vietnamese Army. Launched on September 4, 1967, the ensuing battles killed 127 Americans and an estimated 600 North Vietnamese. Despite their withdrawal after having such, suffered such high losses, the NVA accomplished their objective of intercepting an American offensive operation and inflicting remarkable casualties. 
Beginning on September 11th and going until October 31st of 1967, United States Marines were besieged at, by NVA at Kantian, which is two miles south of the DMZ. A massive long-range artillery duel then erupted between NVA and U.S. guns during the siege. NVA losses are estimated over 2,000, thanks to the history place for that info. And in non-Vietnam news, but notable because we've uh, we we used the song a couple of episodes ago. September seventeenth, we have the infamous performance of "Light My Fire" by The Doors on the Ed Sullivan Show, where Jim Morrison sang, "Girl, we couldn't get much higher," even though he had promised to change the lyric, and was subsequently banned from Sullivan, and more than likely banned from most television performances. Morrison would die in 1971. Letters this issue. We are getting um, we are getting some feedback, more feedback on issue 15. Uh, Catherine Smith talks about how she was happy to see her letter on issue 15. Um, she thought the fi- issue was, that issue was a good one uh, and did show some of the war, what was happening stateside and that she applauds that they're trying to show a Realistic picture of the life back home because families, she says, were confused and frightened, often divided on the issues of the war. Many, many marriages went down the drain as a result as well. Steve Roby from Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada. I'm going to read this in, in its in its whole because Doug uh, Murray replies. Dear Doug, Mike, and everyone, I started reading the nominate's first issue out of curiosity regarding the Vietnam War. As a 24-year-old Canadian, the war had no direct impact on me, and I don't have too many memories relating to it. I realize that emotions still run high on the whole issue, and there is a complexity of feeling that doesn't seem to have come out on of any other war in this century. Your comic has captured some of that, but the home front story in 15 leaves me wondering if the story really represents your attitude toward the war protesters. In this area of Rambo revisionism, it's become popular to show those opposed to the war as hippie thugs. See Apple Comics Vietnam Journal. I understand that the notes from the world was told from Ed Mark's perspective, but I have to wonder if some future Homefront story might possibly show anti-war groups and even draft dodgers in a favorable light. Surely they weren't all cowards and communists. Getting back to the comic, although I liked the idea of a real-time series following the grunts of the 23rd, the newer characters seem a bit vague, less well-defined than the guys who've been around from the beginning. That's not surprising in that Poclo and Rob have been have had more time to develop, but not much has been really done with the new characters. Even so, the nom remains Marvel's best comic. Speaking of Marvel Comics, Sam Glansman's The Sailor Story was superb. Perhaps Marvel should create an ongoing series of serious war stories. Another possibility would be a nom-style series on the war between the states, which tore the U.S. apart more than the nom did. There are a lot of kids out there whose idea of war has been shaped by G.I. Joe comics, and it's good to see that the company responsible for that can also publish the nom and a sailor story. Doug Murray replies, All right. I promise this will be the last of the letters I print about issue 15. Frankly... I realize this would be a touchy subject, but I didn't dream we'd get the volume of letters we have. In quick reply to the above, I don't think I was unfair to the war protesters in the story. I have nothing but the highest regard for those who fought against the war, and who had the fortitude and courage to take the consequences. My argument is against those who were unwilling or unable to make the distinction between those in government and those who made decisions about the war, and the poor folks who fought in it under orders and were subjected to the worst kind of treatment by those at home. Perhaps I will try to tell the other side someday, the story from the anti-war crowd from their point of view. We'll see. 
As for the draft, I felt and I feel that it is a necessary evil. Seriously, how many people will voluntarily enter the military if they know there's a war on and they have a chance of getting killed? Certainly, no one with the sort of brains the military really needs. Of course, the changes after Pearl Harbor, this changes after Pearl Harbor, but it is the sort of disaster Pearl Harbor represented they were trying to avoid. A tough call and one that must each person must answer with both the head and the heart. Doug. Sergeant uh, Thomas B. Huber points out that um, they misspelled McCord <laughs> Air Force Base in number 15, and uh, Doug apologizes for that. And then uh, James Lord of Ada, Michigan, writes in, and he says, he talks about Alarnik. He says, Rob should either go to higher ranks than Roland or have someone frag him. And, and he, he was wondering if uh, if Clark with his hands on an M16 at the end of that issue means that Clark will frag Alarnik. And he wonders why they're sending light stateside. Uh, and and Meacham looks like, he says, Meacham looks like a cross between Roadblock from G.I. Joe and Moses Hightower from Police Academy. Uh, and he says, you know, don't get me wrong, I love the NOM. I liked especially uh, Phillips or Ice, um, kind of a history of material. And he likes that uh, he has a shotgun, kind of like Bunny and pl- Platoon. Um, he says, it's a good portrayal of the unfairness of war, having one of the greenies get waxed, kind of bogue. But though, let, let the readers get more of a chance to, to get to know the guys before they get killed, please. And Doug says, by now that you know what happened to Alarnik, one of the sadder things about the Nam was the fact that men like him were put in positions of responsibility without the experience or wisdom to handle it. Fragging was one answer, but one that caused other problems, both moral and legal. I really don't know what the answer, I really don't know the answer. As for new guys getting waxed, it happened. That's why the older vets really tried to, not to get friendly with the, with the FNGs. Nam notes this time around more words and phrases for you. Pay close attention now. Chinese fire drill. Massive confusion with people running all over the place. Nobody knowing what to do. A dust off. A chopper coming in to pull you out or wounded troops out. An evac hospital. The hospital closest to the front where troops from aid stations or combat zones would be worked on or evacuated to more fully equipped units stateside. Uh, frag, killing one of your own, usually by putting a hand grenade next to him while he's asleep. A sure sign your men don't love you. Hooch, the barracks. Made a believer of me, killed me from the old better red than dead line. Most kosh right away. Patties, rice patties, flooded fields where rice is grown. Pop smoke, set off smoke grenade to mark a position or call in a helicopter. RT, radio telephone, the lifeline between the frontline troops and their support. S2 is intelligence. 60, the M60, the Army's standard light machine gun used heavily in the field of the NAM. And the world, of course, is home or the good old US of A. Adds this issue. Oh, Jolly Rancher Apples, um, a Don Martin piece of one guy shooting a cannon in the face of another guy, and the cannon is bursting full of fruit flavor. It says, Fred tried to show Stan the refreshing fruit, fla- fruit flavor in Jolly Rancher sticks by using props. It's nothing really memorable, but I do like seeing a Don Martin cartoon in a comic book. We have Info Comics. Infocom presents Lane Mastodon for Infocomics. Hi, I'm Lane Mastodon, all-around hero, but more on that later. I'm here to tell you about Infocomics. Do you like comic books? Then you'll love Infocomics. They've got great characters that like the Gamma Force, a trio of interstellar superheroes, and the plots are out of this world. 
Do you like computers? Then you'll love what your computer lets you do in Infocomics. You can switch viewpoints, leaving one character behind while you follow another through his part of the story. And the pictures move too. When the page is turned down like this, it means you can switch to a different character. Just hit the return key, sit back, and enjoy. And they're only $12, suggested retail price. You get a lot for your money, too. You can watch this one for hours. Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen to that brave water beast. I was going to tell you how I became a hero, but I'm busy now. You'll just have to let get the Lane Mastodon info comic to find out. Ask for info comics available now. We have Lane Mastodon. Is that Zork Quest? It's not a very um it's not very easy to read. Um uh, Gamma Force. There's an info comic for everyone. Lane Mastodon accountant Accountant turned interplanetary hero. Was Biclops his sidekick? Um, saves humanity from the blubbermen of Jupiter in the first of this hilarious series. A magic amulet leads a small caravan of travelers to the mysterious Egreth Castle in the premiere issue of Zork Quest, a fantasy series set in the fabulous world of Zork. In Gamma Force number one, see the origins of the superhero trio as they f- team up to free their planet from an evil overlord in his pit of a thousand screams. Don't miss the premieres issue available now at your local software dealer. And there's more action adventure to come collect them all. Um, I had never heard of this. Uh, then I didn't have a computer back in 1988. But uh, it looks like it's... Uh, that looks like it's something worth looking at as far as, one of my, as far as my pop culture affidavit blog would be concerned. Uh, from mud to man to madness, this time he's gone too far. Uh, the Evolutionary War across annual event beginning in April from, from Marvel, which crossed into several different uh, titles, including like the X-Men and Fantastic Four and I think the Avengers. Um, Marvel for a while, but even before DC did that annuals, uh, where all the annuals crossed over into one another. You had the Days of Future Present and the... Uh, Atlantis attacks and evolutionary war and that sort of thing. New England Comics has an ad. There's a little illustration of a of the tick up in the corner. Um, we have a hodgepodge ad with the usual stuff. You can go to high school through the mail. You can get muscles in seven days. You have a bunch of magician stuff. Uh, baseball fever catch it catch it something about you can get um, a player card collection with any of the uh, any of the teams any team that you want. Um, uh, America's Heroes on Medallions. You have coins for four ninety five of uh, each of uh, Cap, Hulk, Spidey, and on the back it says cartoon celebrities. So it's one of those mail in orders. Uh, we have a on the top part of one ad. You have a Wizards and Warriors ad from Acclaim, which is now available to play on your Nintendo Entertainment System. And then on the bottom half, you have J and S Comics of Red Bank, New Jersey. Bullpen bulletins this month: a, a profile on Pat Redding, um, Harry, Harry Harry Candelario of the Photostat Department just got out of the Marine Corps, so he's back in Marvel. There's a couple of uh, shuffling around of different different things in, in editorial that they mentioned. Uh, nothing really exciting except this special announcement. The most exciting television event of the decade is coming to NBC sometime this May. At last, due to popular demand, the Incredible Hulk starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno will be returning to the air 
ways in a special two-hour movie proudly produced by those fabulous folks at New World Entertainment. And pay attention to this, the movie will also feature the mighty Thor. That's right, good old Goldilocks will be making his very first live-action appearance on network television. Rumor has it that this movie may even help launch a brand new weekly Thor television series, even if enough people watch it and call their local television stations to rave about it. Take the hint, will you? Needless to say, your even batty bullpen is real excited by the thought of seeing the mighty Thor battle the Incredible Hulk on national television. It's bound to be the greatest battle in television world, has seen since Leonard Chunokan Hagler, Holmes challenged Tyson and Sledgehammer lost to Cosby. Miss it not. That did air. I don't think I ever actually watched it, though. Uh, another hodgepodge ad. This is just various comic stores in the Marvel Supermart. Uh, we have Doc Ock behind bars getting all upset about how he'll never be free of that pesky wall crawler. But the next best thing is four issues when you subscribe to any Marvel comics. And our inside the back cover ad is they've got the power, you've got the control, an ad for two Konami games, one being Jackal, the other being Contra, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, start. And the back is Terror in the Isles, Forgotten Realms, uh, Black Wizards, which is uh, book two of the Astounding Moonshade Trilogy from TSR. And these TSR, I was never an RPG guy, I was never a TSR guy, but these ads ran quite a bit uh, for years and years and years and years in, in Marvel Comics. And that'll just about do it for uh, for this episode. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, next time around, I'll take a look at issue 21 of the NOM and do the usual historical context, NOM notes and ads. And until then, thank you for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics, the NOM. The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Mm-hmm.